Well, good morning, Third Street. Yeah, talk back to me now, because here in a couple minutes, you're not going to want to. I am incredibly glad uh, to be here with you all this morning. Uh, Man, this has been one of those weeks where it feels like last Sunday was two weeks ago. Anybody else feel that way? Yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah, I'm glad that I'm not alone this morning. Thank you for that. Um, But I've been especially looking forward to this Sunday for a minute now, um, because this Sunday, uh, for the first time in 2022, we get to welcome in a brand new series that's not named Church Clothes. It's okay, it's okay. You can share your excitement with me that we're finally going to learn from a different passage of Scripture. But I hope that you enjoyed, just as I did, the thorough dive into the same passage all year. But we are going to move on, and this this week we kick off a brand new series that'll take us to uh, Resurrection Sunday called Rise Above. Is anybody still with me this morning, church? Can you say Rise Above? Rise Above. Above, See, up to this point, we're armed and ready now, right? We've sufficiently discussed. Oh, she heard me talking about her. Listen, I'm going to stay on this side today. I'm going to stay on this side today. (laughs) We've sufficiently discussed. Welcome, guys. I love you. um, The whole armor of God. Amen. And so I know that as a congregation, we feel well equipped to take on the spiritual battles that we're facing on a daily basis that plague our lives, that plague our families, that plague our communities, that plague our world. I know how excited every single person who has been here for the past 11 and some change weeks, I know how excited you are to get after the battle. And I don't know if you've come across this yet. My guess is you inevitably have. But there are lots of battles going on, aren't there? There's a lot of battles going on. And so a lot of times, it's not, it's not hard to find a battle to fight, is it? The question is, which fight is the right fight? Which fight is your fight? See, I believe that there's a legitimate strategy and tactic of the enemy to catch those of us who are not careful to discern which fights are our fights and to get us caught up in a whole lot of battles that are more to the equivalent of a small dog nipping at our ankles and give that our time and attention rather than face the spiritual war that is in front of us. If we're not careful, it's very easy for us to get caught up. My friend Eddie used to repeat this phrase to me, rise above, bro, rise above. He used to repeat this phrase to me. It was something that we said to each other often because he knows he's, he, well, I don't know how well he knows, but I know he knows me really well. And so I know that from me, he knows what it's like to be an adult uh, living with ADHD. It's easy for me to get What was I saying? (laughs) 
right? It's easy for me to get distracted. And so oftentimes I would get distracted in the things that I was saying, or I would get distracted in the things that I was doing, right? I'd be in the middle of a sentence. I'd be on a roll. God really laid something on my heart. And then somebody over here says something and I, and I want to immediately address it over here. I get distracted and, and, and I get off track from what God had asked me to do. And I start addressing other things. And I would just hear Eddie's voice call to me, rise above, rise above, rise above, right? I don't know if you know this about my past, but your pastor used to really, really like to cut up with people. Uh, I, I used to really, really use uh, uh, the tongue that the Lord has blessed me with to tear people down more than I did to build people up. I know that's impossible for you to believe, right? And I can just hear Eddie's voice calling to me as I, as I start to address something petty that somebody said that I know I can wreck their life. In one sentence, I can hear just as the words are forming on my lips. Rise above, bro. Rise above. The point of rise above, in other words, is for us to keep our eyes on the things that God has called us to. Rise above for us is choosing to not get distracted by the many small battles that can pull our time and attention and resource, but rather to stay focused on the main thing that God has called us to. If you're still with me this morning and you brought your Bibles, you can turn to the Gospel of Mark. It'll be the second book in the New Testament. It's a gospel that if you're somebody who's just kind of starting out and you want to get the gist, you want to get the main idea of what this Christian faith is about, I recommend to you starting with the gospel of Mark. Of the gospels that, of the synoptic gospels that are written, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, it is the one that is the most straightforward. And for all of my, uh, uh, from all of my people who resonate with my spirit uh, and approach to education, it's the shortest. Amen. But this, this story that we're going to read this morning is recorded in all three synoptic gospels, but for the sake of time and what we want to accomplish this morning, we're going to settle in the gospel of Mark. This is, cha- this is uh, chapter three of the gospel according to Mark, and I'm going to read in our time together just the first six verses. The word of God says this, again, he, meaning Jesus, entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they, meaning the Pharisees, they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. I wish I had time this morning. (laughs) I wish I had time. Stretch out your hand. And so the man stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. It's natural for us, right? It's natural for us to get angry. It's natural for us on this side of eternity to grow discontent, to become 
dissatisfied with the status quo, if you will, to get tired of a space. We come into a space or we're regularly participating in a space and we grow discontent with what's around us. It happens, quite honestly, if you're willing to go there, it happens in our homes. It happens in our homes. We get discontent, especially in parenting, right? Let me just talk to the parents for a second. Are any of you discontent with maybe the way you've seen your children grow? Maybe you're discontent with the way that you've seen your parenting grow. Maybe you're just discontent with the overall condition of your house. My goodness, it's dirty. But can I tell you that Jesus did not come in to remind you of your dirty floors? No, I'm not going to preach to my family today. I'm just going to keep moving. We can grow discontent. Yep, sip that tea, baby. Um, We can grow discontent in our jobs. Man, he said, don't talk about that. That's a pastor. I'm going to move on. We can grow discontent in our friend groups. Man, all of a sudden we noticed, dang, like my people are low-key haters, aren't they? Or have you ever noticed how she always, you know what I'm saying. We can grow discontent with what we're starting to see on TV. Man, all you got to do is turn on the TV and you hear about everybody's discontent. Everybody's got an opinion that they're super willing to share about how the way things are aren't okay. Some of us this morning are discontent with what we see in sports. I'm not. I'm a Tar Heels fan. And some of us, some of us, believe it or not, are even discontent in our churches. I know that shocks everyone here because we're perfect, but a lot of people are incredibly willing to express their discontent with God's salvation plan for the world. A lot of people are willing to voice their frustrations with how they feel like something should be going. The, the thing about it is that, is that things aren't always as we believe they should be, right? That's the root of the issue. Things are not always as we feel like they ought to be. And can I tell you something? Can I, can I alleviate you just a little bit before you think I'm coming for you? I'm not coming for you for about five more minutes. Right now, we're all on the same side. There is theological truth behind discontentment. There is theological truth behind us not being satisfied with the way things are because I have to let you in on something. This is not the way God intended it to be, right? We were created for the Garden of Eden and we're not there, are we? We're not in Eden. Our hearts now are longing for perfection and harmony and eternity. But this is not that, is it? Lately, it seems like we're discontent with a whole lot as a result of that theological truth. But my question that I want us to process this morning is, is the discontentment you feel, 
holy or unholy. In the story that we read in, in the Gospel of Mark, which can also be, be found in Matthew chapter 12 and Luke chapter 6, I believe. In the story, there's a lot to be discontent about. There's a lot to be dissatisfied with. There's a lot to indicate to us whether our discontent comes from a holy place or an unholy place. What I'm trying to tell you is there's a lot in these short six verses. And I don't have the time this morning, I really don't, to tell you all of them. But you all know me well enough to know that I'm at least going to tell you three of them. Yeah, it's good to be known. The first one in regards to your discontent being holy or unholy, the first one is this, empathy versus hardness. Is your discontent birthed out of empathy or is your discontent birthed out of a hard heart? We encounter in this story a man with a withered hand a man with a hand who didn't grow as it should have grown, a man with a hand that he cannot use, right? He can see okay, he can hear okay, he can talk okay, he can walk okay, but he can't use his hand. The Gospel of Luke, the physician, points out the fact that it's his right hand. In all likelihood, just basic statistics, it's likely his dominant hand. Shout out to all my left-handed friends, right? But he is a man who is handicapped. He is a man whose influence and opportunity in certain spheres is undermined by the fact that his hand doesn't function as it should properly function. He is a man whose livelihood is being taken away from because he only has one hand to use. He's in a tough situation. Try getting a job without a sufficient education when you only have this one hand to work with in the first century. He's in a really difficult spot. Try walking to a space, trying to be unnoticed and just go about your day when one of your hands that you reach out to shake with doesn't work the way that the person whose hand you're shaking does. He's in a tough predicament. And did you notice, did you catch where they're gathered? They're gathered in this place called the synagogue. In other words, it's the Sabbath and they've gathered to observe the Lord's day. They've gathered to worship. They've gathered to read the scriptures. They've gathered very much under the same pretenses as you and I have gathered this morning. I wish I had more time because if I did, I would point out that at least the man with the withered hand knew where to go if he was looking for God to move. Right. If I had more time, I would ask you all the question, how many of us, when we have something that is undermining or handicapping our walk in faith, go to the places we know God hangs out for answers? And how many of us go find something else to give us an answer? But I don't have time to go there today. All I have enough time for in this instance is to say, thank God he knew where God ought to be hanging out. Thank God the man with the withered hand thought to go to the place where he is expecting to see and hear about God moving. But what's present in the synagogue and what is most disturbing about this is that there's two very different perspectives present in the synagogue when it's applied to spiritual leadership. 
There's two very different perspectives. There's Jesus's perspective of the man with the withered hand, and then there's the Pharisees' perspective. Here's why that's troubling. The Pharisees were those who were trained. The Pharisees were those who ought to know God's law. The Pharisees were those that if you had a question or a judgment that needed to be made on behalf of the God that you and I follow, the Pharisees were the ones that were supposed to weigh in. So if anyone in this room should be just, if anyone in this room should reflect the heart of God, if anyone in this room ought to be able to rule on behalf of God, it should be the Pharisees, right? And then there's Jesus, who is actually God. And I don't know if you've ever felt this tension in modern context, but it's real disheartening to me that the religious leaders of the day and Jesus had different perspectives on this day. I can't imagine, though, that this took Jesus by surprise. I mean, after all, he is the one that told the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know the one. You know the one where there's a man who's beaten and bloody. He's, he's handicapped. He's undermined. He's, his livelihood is at risk on the side of the road. And then there's a priest and a Levite, both of which work in the temple, both of which help facilitate the presence of God, both of which are said to be religious leaders, and both of which pass this beaten man by. But then he tells the story of a good Samaritan who sees the victim on the side of the road and rather than having their mind bogged down with all of the religious duties that they have to go get to, instead leads out of empathy and assists the man on the side of the road. You see where I'm going with this, right? Let me make it plain. We all have a withered hand. Some of us use our hands well, but we don't see well. Some of us use our mouths well, but we don't hear well. Some of us, some of us get clear pictures of vision, but we don't walk well. We all have something that undermines our influence. All of us. But some, some are more obvious than others, aren't they? And that's the tension. Some people's withered hands are a little more obvious than others. Some people were shocked when we see their withered hands. And others were like, yeah, I knew that was there. Right? The good news is that our Savior, the good news is our Messiah, the good news about Jesus, the good news about the one and only one who has the power to do something about your withered hand is that he leads with empathy, not a hardness of heart, as Mark says. He leads with empathy. But the question that I have to pause and offer here is, do we then as believers lead with the same empathy when it comes to other people's withered hands? Right? If somebody in this room has a more obvious withered hand than some might think yours is, 
and it makes you uncomfortable. I wonder, are you uncomfortable because the spirit is prompting you towards empathy because you know that God wants to heal them of that? Or are you uncomfortable because you have a hardness of heart toward that particular uh, issue that that individual represents? There's a second, a second thing, a second indicator of our discontent being holy or unholy. And that is, do we go to offer mercy or penalty? Jesus ironically asked the question when he's about to heal the man with the withered hand. He said, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good? Or to do harm. Here's why he's saying that. Because right before this instance, he gets into it a little bit with these Pharisees. This is actually part two of a longer story, right? The longer story is where the Pharisees try to corner Jesus because they are accusing him of doing work on the Sabbath. See, cultural practice and, 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 and Jewish law dictates that you don't work on the Sabbath. This is the Sabbath, right? You should do nothing but rest on the Sabbath, right? And, and what happened was Jesus' disciples were hungry, and so he let them pick just a little bit of wheat from the field, and the Pharisees got bent out of shape about that because they said that that was harvest, that that was work, right? He said, how can you be the Messiah when you allow your followers to work on the Sabbath? And so Jesus sees the man with a withered hand, And I don't know that he actually said this, but in my mind, in my heart, in the way that I know Jesus, I like to think that he was just sarcastic enough to think in his heart, but not say out loud to to that in a way that would damage his reputation. Oh, so that's why this guy who's in your church still has a withered hand then. Because you don't work on the Sabbath. So if the only time you see him is on Sunday, you ain't never healed him because you don't do that on that day. You got to come see you on a Monday. That's why he's still suffering, right? It must be. It must be. Right. I don't know that he actually said that. He said it in a much better way. He said, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Is it lawful to heal? According to your law, according to your standard, according to your expectation that you say comes from God, should I heal this man or let him continue in destruction? The Sabbath says, uh-uh. literally by the law says no work. But Jesus' posture is that of mercy for the man with a withered hand. His posture when he enters on the Sabbath day is of mercy. Mercy for his disciples who are hungry. Fine, we can't work, but you want me to let them starve? Mercy for the man with a withered hand. Fine, I can't work, but you want me to, to, to let him go to his death? Mercy is the way that Jesus leads. What does it say the Pharisees are there to do? The Pharisees are watching carefully. It's important. Leave it alone. The Pharisees are watching carefully to do what? The text says to accuse, to find fault. 
They're not there with a posture of mercy. They're not walking into a synagogue looking for somebody who's hurt. They're looking to accuse the one that they're after. They're looking to bring penalty on Jesus's head. Now, I don't know how you feel about it, but that doesn't sound to me like a person's posture who's ready to facilitate the dwelling place of God. I don't know how it sounds to you, but that doesn't sound like people who are ready to teach other people about God. You know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like the devil. Satan's called an accuser. Revelation chapter 12, verses 9 through 11, it says, And the great dragon, meaning Satan, was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the, ready for it, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Ha, but they, the believers, have conquered the accusations. They've conquered the accuser. By the blood of Jesus and by the word of their testimony. See, right before this, right before he ironically asked the question, should I heal him or no? Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'd rather you know God. I'd rather you know him then perform ceremonial duties in his name. He says it's funny how you can be on your way to perform ceremonial, religious, on behalf of God duties, but sound so dang much like the devil. He says, I'd rather you know him than perform these duties. I'd rather you know God than pretend And Jesus Jesus is inciting that if you knew him, you wouldn't come in here like the devil would, right? If you knew the heart, if you knew the heart of our God, he expands in Matthew's gospel, if you knew the heart of our God, your posture in here would look more like a shepherd looking for a lost sheep, not one who's trying to make accusations. You can see why this would get under the Pharisees' skin. See, the Pharisees had an expectation of how the Sabbath ought to be observed, while Jesus had an expectation of how people ought to be treated. We we live in a time where it's super normal to call out your discontent. Like anybody with an email address to sign up for any platform whatsoever can have followers and an opinion. Like high key, like I love you to death, but you're not special because you have a lot of followers. That's like meaningless, right? Um, but anybody can call out their discontent. Truth is almost an afterthought now. 
Like, you just have to say it. And even if you take it back the next day, it doesn't change the fact that just by you saying it, even making a baseless accusation creates a perception around the person that you're accusing, whether it's truthful or not. There are things that we're arguing about right now, and we have no way of knowing if they're true or not. But we get so caught up in the argument because of baseless claims that are made and a perception that is created. It's tough, isn't it? And what I need the church that I'm a part of to understand is that as Christians, we have a responsibility to steward that influence really well, really carefully. In other words, what I'm saying is we of all people have to be really, really careful with the words that we say, especially as it pertains to other people. May our words be merciful, not accusatory. When we go to call out the discontent, I have to wonder, are we doing it with a tone and posture of accusation or are we doing it with mercy? Now, I know I'm about to step in it. I know it's getting a little thick in here because of specific instances that you're thinking of. Well, pastor, you're probably not considering, right? I know. But I have to wonder, are we calling out for mercy on behalf of a victim who has suffered for too long? Or are we calling for there to be penalty over the one accused? Because those aren't the same thing. And I don't know that Jesus would do both. Are we looking to correct a consequence of humanity's brokenness? Or are we looking to legislate a standard we have for people that they may or may not adhere to? It's different. Mercy, by definition, is compassion or forgiveness shown towards somebody who it is within one's power to punish or harm. In other words, it's you having every right to hold penalty over somebody's head and then offering compassion and empathy instead. Yeah, I know only two people are going to clap on that, right? I believe that Jesus would tell you, leave the penalty up to me. Leave the penalty up to me. Trust me to do right by everyone involved. I believe that Jesus would remind you that he will and he has already worked out how all penalties will be paid. And that I believe it is not for us to accuse, cancel, or penalize as believers. That's not our job. Rather, our posture should be that of mercy. Can I ask you where God is calling you to be merciful right now in your life? <laughs> she said no. That's honest. I appreciate it. We'll talk about it later, though. <laughs> where is God asking you to see people how he sees them and not the way the world sees them? When you go to voice your discontentment, are you leading with the mercy 
that God has shown you. Mm. There is one more before I can let you go if it's okay. I know it's not, but I'm going to do it anyway. And the last one is, 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 has, to do with, has to do with what happens when your discontentment is carried out, right? When your discontentment is carried out, does it look like restoration? Or does it look like destruction? I love the rest of this passage. I love verses 5 and 6. Because it says that Jesus looked around at them with anger. Looked around at them with anger. He was ticked, right? The Bible does not like mince words, right? There's no Greek translation we can find to lessen the fact that Jesus was all the way upset at what he was seeing. And he said out of anger, not towards the withered hand, but towards the rest of the room. He says, stretch out your hand. I don't have time. I don't have time. He says, stretch out your hand. And so he stretched it out. And out of anger, what happened? The man's hand was restored. Is that what your anger looks like? See, the Pharisees... The Pharisees left angry too. The Pharisees left angry too. I see the shoe. The Pharisees left angry too, right? But what does it say about their anger? It says that in their anger, they left with a plan to destroy Jesus. Out of Jesus's anger, there was restoration. Out of the Pharisees' anger, there was planned destruction. Both felt anger. But both were going to have very different outcomes. Can I take just another minute of your time to tell you, to show you, to take you on a super quick journey of what happens when Jesus gets angry? Because here's what I don't want you to think. I don't want you to think that in this whole discourse on discontentment, I'm telling you, don't be mad. Nah, get upset. Be mad. Be discontent. But be discontent and do something with it the way that Jesus would. Because when Jesus was angry, he called Lazarus out of the dead. When Jesus was angry, he put little kids at his side. When Jesus was angry, he flipped tables and made it easier for people to come to his father. When Jesus was angry, he healed somebody. So get mad. Get upset. Be all riled up in your feelings, but do something with it like Jesus would do. When, what does it look like if you were to be given your way with your anger? If you were to be given full power to perfectly execute what's in your heart's discontent to do, would the people around you be restored? Or would everything be turned to rubble? If you could execute perfectly the desires of your heart based on the discontent that you feel, would people feel restored? Or would there be people destroyed? Church, (laughs) it's okay to be dissatisfied with the status quo. Because we live in a broken, fallen world. Honestly, if you were a Christian on this side of eternity and you had no problems with the way that the world is going, I, uh, 
I'm not going to accuse you, but you know what I'm saying? I have mercy for you. God, lay mercy on your soul. It's okay to feel discontent with this world. It really is. But, but we got to check our hearts with the way that we handle it. Like, for real. I mean, this is me too. We have to make sure that the discontent that we feel and express is coming from a heart of mercy. It's coming from a heart of empathy. Expressed in a way that restores. That is what God has called us to. God has put us on this property. God has put us in this room. God has put us in the people's lives that we, in the spaces where we currently occupy to be discontent. He doesn't want you comfy. Because if you're comfy, you ain't going to do nothing. You feel me? Some of y'all this morning were like, yeah, that was my bed until I woke up, decided to come here and get yelled at. I feel you. I'm with you. Right? Jesus puts you where you're at to be discontent. The question is, what is your heart's posture towards your discontentment? Pray to God. Ask for the empathy. Pray to God. Help him or have him help you show you how to offer mercy. Because that's the only place that can come from. And ultimately, put your hands to the work that is not going to assassinate character. Destroy places of worship, but is going to restore people's lives.